Hello, my name is Pastor Andreas Bekai. I'm the lead pastor here at the Walla Walla University Church, and we're delighted that you're joining us today. Our services are a little bit different, and we are in a bit of an experimental mode at the moment, but we would love to hear your thoughts and your comments about what church means and what it looks like for you during this time of social distancing. You can reach out to us on Facebook, on Instagram, or via our church website with your comments and with your ideas. We also invite you to become a part of our ministry and to donate to us. You can give through the link on our website for your tax deductible donations, or you can give to the local church budget using Cash App. Thank you so much for joining us this Sabbath. The morning after the night before, hung over with shock, the entire nation woke up after barely sleeping. Newspapers editorialized the momentous event, and although there was some discrepancies in the minutiae, all the papers agreed on the larger scenes, namely that a dangerous group of agitators had pushed through aggressive advocacy for an issue that was close to their heart, paralyzing the nation. Or the papers concurred that these people had forced the hand of the government to retaliate due to their destruction and to their naked defiance. It came at a bad time, as the nation had just suffered a series of calamitous pandemics. Economists looked at the numbers and thought, that had it been for just the pandemics, the nation could have perhaps suffered a small recession before coming out, but now the nation looked like it was on the edge of a depression and the economy would collapse. Media reports of private citizens having family heirlooms been taken from them, and viral pictures on social media showed a particular scene of vandalism as bright red paint was posted on doorposts and on door frames by these aggressors. This surprised no one because these agitators were known to have troubled upbringing, dysfunctional family dynamics, and were wholly deficient in their nature. Their women gave birth at an extraordinary rate without any regard to the strain it would put on the social system. Their men, everyone knew that their men were lazy, were indolent, and were always looking for excuses. They never took agency for their own actions, but they always pointed the finger at someone else. They lived in ghettos strictly off limits to anyone but themselves. They were a troublesome, ungrateful people, blaming others for their troubles and never taking responsibility. And so in a last-ditch attempt, the newspapers tell us that the government dispatched law enforcement officers and the army to quell the disruption that these agitators had brought on the nation. And so the army is marshaled against this group, and unfortunately, due to sorcerous circumstances, the army was unsuccessful, suffering shocking losses of life. It was a historically catastrophic event that would live in infamy in the history of the nation. It left all of Egypt in deep 
morning. Prayer vigils were held in temples across the land. Minutes silence were observed. Mourners shaved their head, and in response, bloggers wrote and titled that event as the exodus of the Israelites. This event occurred thousands of years ago, and yet this ancient story has a lived and dreary familiarity to a subsection of Americans living today. If you grew up in church, you've heard the story of the Exodus. It's a story which is archetypal for so much of the Bible. It's the story of the Israelites as slaves, and the king and his elites as slave owners. It's a life of the Israelites described in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, as a life that was bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work. It is a story of intimidation, of humiliation, of forced labor, of powerlessness, and of oppression. And when the slaves ask Pharaoh for a three-day weekend so they can go and worship God, Pharaoh responds in a way typical to all oppressors in that he doesn't not grant their request, but he makes things even worse than they were before. In a sense, saying, that will teach them to ask me for anything. I give no reprieve. So after 400 years of oppressive systemic injustice, the Israelites were trapped in a hopeless situation with no way out. And the only way they could go out is if they had a waymaker to save them. Today brings us to the end of our series, Waymaker, that we have been going through. And today's story is going to challenge us to see God as a waymaker and to see how we are called to partner with God in being waymakers. Exodus chapter 2, 23 to 24, gives us some background on what is happening with the Israelites. Now it happened in the process of the time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And another vignette, it says, God looked up upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, giving us more detail on the situation of the Israelites, it says, And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And when you read this in the Hebrew, you see this word, no, to yada, this word of deep internet knowledge and connection. God says he knows intimately the sorrows of those who are oppressed, the sorrows of the Israelites. And I think today, to know that there is a God who knows sorrow, who knows oppression, who knows persecution, is good news for someone today. To know that there is a God who sees, 
There is a God who hears our cries. There is a God who is intimately acquainted with our bitter sorrows is good news for somebody today. And in the midst of COVID-19 and the eruption of a society in turmoil, we reflect today that a Minnesota man, George Floyd, was brutally killed his basic humanity stripped by someone charged to protect our common humanity. His death is what sociologists call a condensed symbol, a parable of what African Americans have felt for generations. A condensed symbol is an idea or a moment that contains in itself a whole worldview or history that can be brought up and that can be triggered by a singular event. And so for the many in this country, the death of George Floyd was a condensed symbol. And if that was all it was, it would be enough for rivers of tears. But it wasn't just George Floyd, it was also Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, and it was also Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. And it has come as a shock to some of us. A shock. That the racial terror that has been woven from long past in the fabric of this nation has not been abating but it's now rearing its ugly head again. Now, some would look at these situations and they would say, Andreas, hold on. This is a bug. And there are others who would say, no, this is not a bug of the system. This is a feature. Because when after eight minutes of restricted air, the plea is pushed out, The plea is gasped out, I can't breathe. That resounds in our ears, the ears of black people, in the ears of African Americans, that resounds, and when those words are heard, we cannot feel but to be angry, to be upset to be scared, to feel unheard. It undercasts our trust in the expressed social contract of America that all lives matter, when some lives seem to matter less. And so this Exodus narrative gives us an interpretive lens to navigate this vitreous national moment and not to ignore it. And friends, as disciples of the risen Christ, this is not a moment that we can pass by or ignore. It cannot be dismissed as optional. It cannot be minimized as a political left or right issue. This is a human issue. This is a gospel summons. And it's one that I have labored over for two weeks in preparation for this sermon, thinking about my words as a black person in a predominantly non-black place, thinking what are the words that need to be said 
And I thank God that for every moment, the Bible gives us a way through. The Bible gives us a way to understand and to grapple and to navigate with thorny issues. At the March on Washington in 1963, one of the speakers was a uh, rabbi, Joachim Prince, who had been a rabbi in Germany during Hitler's regime. And he started his speech to that innumerable crowd on the march on Washington. And he said this when I was a rabbi in the Jewish community in Berlin. Under the Hitler regime, the most important thing I learned under those tragic circumstances was that bigotry and hatred are not the most urgent problems. Listen carefully. He said they were not the most urgent problems. He said the most urgent and most distasteful the most shameful, the most tragic problem is silence. And so today I speak, and I hope you will speak tomorrow, and I hope you will continue to speak when this no longer garners headlines. And so the Exodus story. We find God as the ultimate waymaker, ready to break the yoke of oppression from the necks of the Israelites. And yet this narrative insists that there are more lessons to learn beyond just the uh, release of Israelites from Egypt. And I want to share just three with you today as we try to figure out what the call is for us as disciples of the risen Christ in this moment. As we heed the words of Rabbi Joachim Prince not to be silent. And I think this narrative invites us to three things. Number one, when we look at the story of the Exodus, we recognize in that story that number one, God's ears are tuned to the cries of the hopeless and the oppressed. We hear God listening to the cries of asphyxiated men. We are given solace that God sees the angry bullets that pierce the bodies of innocent people, that God sees the recorded videos on iPhones that are posted onto Twitter, that God sees the women and the children who suffer silently behind drawn curtains and practice smiles because they are in abusive homes. We are given hope that God hears the groaning of those stricken with years of undiagnosed pain that no one is able to relieve. When we look at the Exodus story, we are given hope that God hears the tears of parents trying desperately to repair broken relationships with children before they leave for college. God hears and God sees the hopeless and the oppressed. Point number two that we learn from the Exodus story is this, that God uses human instrumentalities to accomplish his saving work. And this is an important point and perhaps the longest point I want to dwell on today, that God uses human instrumentalities to accomplish his saving work. Notice how this plays out in the story of the Exodus with Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Come now, therefore, this is God speaking, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
This is a tall order. Listen to Moses' response. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so God has given him a summons and Moses is afraid. God is getting ready to release people from oppression, from brutality, from slavery, and he has asked someone, namely Moses, to join him in that work of release, in that work of justice, and Moses is afraid. He says, I cannot do it. We know that Moses' heart is with those who are being suppressed. But when God calls him and says, partner with me, in bringing release and liberty, although his heart is with the people, he doubts his ability to be used by God in the work of salvation. But Moses forgets an important point, and that point is this. When we accept God's invitation, and we all have, if we consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, when we accept that call to follow Jesus and to pick up our cross, when we accept God's summons to be his disciples, it is God's work primarily that will bring his kingdom and make it manifest on earth. It is not primarily our action, but God still invites us. It is his work and not ours. And so in this moment, when I read Exodus chapter 3, and I read it through the interpretive lens of this moment, I can imagine Moses was someone who was woke. I can imagine that Moses was the kind of person who before saying no to God, I don't want to help, had participated in Blackout Tuesday, quoted a few MLK uh, pieces, felt a bone-deep sense of grief and agony when he saw those who were oppressed. But when the rubber hit the road, Moses was full of excuses because it was going to cost him too much. So Moses said to God, I can't do it. I can't. Me? You have the wrong person. I cannot be involved. My heart is there, but you need to go ahead and do it. Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, God persists with Moses. And then Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. Oof. God doesn't let Moses off the hook. We see in this dialogue between Moses and God, that if you are not under the boot of oppression, then you are called to work against oppression. And in that call, to know that perfect preparation is not needed. If you are in a moment, like Moses, where there are people around you suffering, and where you have heard the call of Jesus Christ as a disciple to join in that work, and you have made excuses, God does not leave you. God persists 
God speaks to your heart. God makes you feel uncomfortable. God makes sleep difficult to come by. God makes you think about all the emails you should be sending and the phone calls you should be making. He doesn't leave you. And when you make an excuse and you say, but God, I don't know all the ins and outs of this issue. I don't have the right words. I'm going to say the wrong thing. God says, hold on. You do have a duty to work against oppression and perfect preparation is not needed. And having the right words is not needed. And, and stepping into a situation and possibly saying things in the wrong way does not preclude you from God's call in this moment as it didn't for Moses thousands of years ago. Here's another thing we learn in that dialogue. That when God calls in moments like this, you have to recognize that you already have tools for this work. And if you don't, God will equip you. When God calls Moses, Moses is only thinking about his inability to communicate in a way that he thinks would have been cogent and would have been convincing. And yet, if you look at Moses' life, you will see that he has been privileged with certain tools that actually allow him to join God in this work of releasing those who are oppressed. Because Moses, lest we forget, had an Ivy League education. Moses had graduated from high school. Moses had gone to college. Moses had a master's. Moses had the equivalent of a PhD. He was smart, and that was a tool that he was able to utilize, but he was not thinking about what he had. He was only making excuses about what he didn't have. Gender. Moses was a man in a time when if you were a woman, you had no voice. And so he could have recognized that this, in fact, is another place in which I have a tool to use in this fight against oppression. Moses had the ability to understand intimately Egyptian thought and also to know the Israelites' experience because don't forget he had grown up in the courts of Pharaoh. And so Moses did not recognize that he had oodles of cultural capital because of where he had grown up and because of who he knew. All Moses could think about was what he didn't have. And in this moment, you have the tools for the work, and God will equip you. Another one, you have the words for this work. Even though Moses was complaining he didn't, you have the words for this work. Google is your friend. God is your guide. What do I mean by this? This may seem to make absolutely no sense, but this comment here is centered very particularly in this national moment as this country grapples with racism and as people sit on the sidelines and wonder, how do I enter into this conversation? I don't know what to say. I don't know who to ask. And I'm saying, my friends, Google is your friend and God is your guide. The Holy Spirit will move in your life. Google will guide your search so that you can be in this moment, like Moses, partnering with God to help people who are in systems of oppression and who are unable to do what you can with the tools and with the place that God has given to you. And a time comes, and I think that time has come, when God's call to us to love our neighbor as ourself means we must choose courage over convenience.
And the third thing that we ought to know in this moment is that God in Christ is the ultimate way maker. God in Christ is the ultimate way maker. In Exodus chapter 14, where our scripture reading came from, we see God rescuing the Israelites. We see God winding his spirit over the Red Sea, making a way when there was no way, making a way when it seemed the Israelites were doomed to wholesale destruction. God comes and intervenes in an incredible way. And when God intervenes, he encourages the Israelites with a promise in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And perhaps you have watched this sermon today and you have wondered uh, as you have sat feeling uncomfortable, you, you have been a little unsure, you have been caught off guard, you have been surprised by the content of this sermon You've wondered if this sermon was even necessary. You've wondered, is this not an overreaction, Andreas? Perhaps you still agree, yes, racism is plaguing our country, but like any other sin, only God can deal with it. And you just told us in reading Exodus that we need to just stand still and see the salvation of God because some things will never be dealt with. Let's read further in Exodus chapter 14. Read verse 15. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Verse 16. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. When I read this text and when I think about this moment, I recognize that As Christians, our ultimate hope is not in the left and it's not in the right. My ultimate hope is not in conservatives, it's not in liberals. My ultimate hope is in Jesus. I recognize that. That is the foundation upon which my faith is laid and upon which I stand. And yet we see that although God is the ultimate way maker, he calls Moses in that moment of liberation of an oppressed people to take a stand with a particular public action so that he can make a way. God is the only one who can make a way, yes. God is the only one who can change hearts, yes. But God calls Moses and he calls you today to partner with him to be a way maker for those who are suffering. And if you have been unaware and unaffected, know my friends, there are many people who don't have that privilege, who can be ignorant of what is going on. Know that my friends, the very students that we love and that are part of our community, there are students who have sent messages who are scared for their safety because of the color of the skin that they were born in. 
There are students who have suffered circumstances here and where they live that cause them to wish, perhaps I wish I had the same privileges as other people because life has been so difficult for them. I think about members of our own congregation who have not had a full night of sleep in over a week because of the deep anxiety and the re-traumatizing effect of the killing of George Floyd. I think about the members in this congregation and the multitude of conversations I've had about the deafening silence. It's an option that many do not have. And in this moment, in this particular moment, in the same way that God is the ultimate waymaker, yes, He is the ultimate waymaker, He calls us like Moses in this moment for the people who have been under so much pain to stretch out your arms in the same way that Moses stretched out his arms on God's command over the chaotic seas of racism, God calls you to also stretch out your arms and to invoke the God of heaven over the hurling chariots of bigotry. God also calls you, like he did for Moses, to stretch out your arms when you hear the pounding of hooves coming to do violence against others. God calls you in that same way, not because we are going to solve it, but because if we are following God, it means by default we have signed up to be on the side of the oppressed. It means by default we have laid down our option to be silent. We have laid down our options to see this as a non-important moment. And so, as I think about this moment, I cannot think about a better way to conclude this than to go to Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate example in everything. I cannot think of a better example than to look at Jesus Christ, who incarnates himself and who comes to rescue a world that is bound in slavery. That Matthew 21, 21 says, And his name shall be called Emmanuel, and he will save his people from their sin. And so Jesus is coming to save people from sin. And yet when Jesus Christ stands up in Luke chapter 4, and he gives his inaugural speech about what it means for the kingdom of God to come. When Jesus Christ opens his mouth to tell people what it looks like to love and care for your neighbors, Jesus Christ invokes the Isianic promise of a prophet long time ago, and he says, this is what I am doing, and this is what you ought to do as my apprentices and as my disciples. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those 
who are oppressed. If I've upset you today, it's all right. But my prayer for this community, my prayer for this community is that in the weeks and months to come, that we will follow the footsteps of Jesus and that we will be ambassadors for the oppressed. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.